Hello and welcome to Extreme Perspectives. This is a monthly podcast created by the Sense Network to bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. This podcast is for people who want to expand their mind and develop their creative intelligence. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. For 20 years, I've been seeking out people from the edges of culture, the creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones. People who want to change things and push the human race forward. In this episode of Extreme Perspectives, I speak with the outlier, investment banker, innovator, and master tea sommelier, Ajit Madan. Ajit's journey has taken him from a D at maths to a successful career in investment banking. Surviving the 2008 financial crash gave him the confidence to follow his passions, tea and tennis. As the UK's first master tea sommelier, he is at the forefront of wellness teas, innovating and changing the way that people consume all over the world. We discuss what makes the perfect cup of English breakfast tea and the science behind what makes people innovative and reflect on the power of intuition over AI. Serve up a cuppa and settle in as we spill the tea. Good morning, Ajit. Hey, morning, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing today? Yeah, good. What can I say? It's um, uh, the first quarter of the year and things are looking fantastic. And uh, I get to have a, a chance with my good old buddy Jeremy this morning. So nice start to the day. <laughs> Excellent. As you know, there's form for this podcast and it always opens with the same question. So to get us rolling, Ajit, are you an outlier, a misfit, a rebel? Or a crazy one? It's such a great question. Each of those adjectives has so many meanings to them. I think I'm an outlier. And I think the reason I say that is because, I don't know, it's it's a difficult look back. But when you do look back at what's driven you through your life, you know, whether it's friendships, family or business, I've kind of always been the person who has started out in the mainstream, but I've always ended up when it comes to execute my own life, you know, kind of learning from the mainstream, but actually doing things which are always on the edges of what other people tend to find comfortable or find too risky, perhaps. So I kind of seem to always take the hard road, the harder journey. It just what inspires me. I'm a bit of a dreamer. I think outlier is probably the best way to describe me. Would you agree? Yeah, I think I might. I like that description. I like that frame that you've put around it. It would be great to hear when you as you think about those times or the journey that you mentioned you've been on. So, you know, just uh, colour that in a little bit. Okay. Um, well, I um, I guess it really starts, you know, my, you know, my family, my parents were the first generation Asians who uh, emigrated to the UK. From a very early age, I had that kind of, that, that classic Asian upbringing where you're schooled and conditioned to work hard uh, and to be a doctor or an accountant. You know, so I was very much, you know, my early informative years, you know, at school uh, were kind of kind of framed by that a little bit. Even though I was given the ability to do things I wanted, it was always very much you're going to be a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer. And I was never really aware of it when it was happening. But there was, you know, when you look back, you could see the kind of the, the conditioning that was going on within the family unit. And so when I left school, I kind of, I wanted to be a scientist, really. I've, I've always been a dreamer around science. You know, even to this day, I spend a good portion of my spare time listening to and reading and attending, you know, kind of podcasts and sort of lectures around physics, which is insane, insanely geeky. 
but I, I'm sort of an amateur physicist on the side and, you know, very much an amateur sort of philosopher, I guess. Um, and I think when I look back, you know, those sort of attributes is what's really driven me from those days of conditioning of being an accountant or being a doctor to where I am today. Is that kind of that dream of, um, you know, science and also it sort of manifested itself as, you know, the, the kind of the healing arts, I guess. I think when I left school, I always wanted to be a doctor of some sort. And uh, when I went to university, I just messed around too much, you know, partied a bit too hard, uh, had the wrong kind of friends and never hit the grades I needed to to get into medicine. And so I kind of defaulted back to my earlier conditioning, which was a accountant, lawyer or banker kind of vibe and ended up um, starting a, a very, very successful investment banking career. Despite the fact, and this is at my uh, kind of a great humor of my friends, you know, I got a D at GCSE Maths, but I ended up having this top end kind of investment banking role, which was surrounded by numbers and mathematics. And it, it still makes my friends laugh to this day that I had a, a successful 15 year investment banking career. But I think a bit like you, Jeremy, just had a bit of the gift of the gab, kind of pulled me through that career. I'm just thinking back. So, yeah, I kind of uh, did my molecular biology degree and then um, ended up doing a master's in economics at Southampton University. Went down the classical path of then getting a graduate job uh, with NatWest Markets, which was an investment bank back in the day. And just started a career in capital markets, kind of a sales guy in that area. And I did that for 15 years. It was the most incredible job, uh, the most incredible, fertile learning platform that you know, someone can go through. You know, At the age of 26, 27, I was advising chairmen and CEOs of multinational boards, which was just an insane thing to be doing at that age. So I think my star rose very, very quickly at an early age, and it was unexpected. I hit a lot of success earlier than I you know, ever expected. Um, but, you know, despite all of that, in all of the trappings of those kinds of jobs and, and the wealth and the money that that brings you, you know, my baseline was always still around the healing arts. I always had this huge passion uh, for doing something and it sounds a bit hippie but I always wanted to you know, contribute to the wellness of the world actually you know driven by science and healing and and I always had this um, this underlying subconscious drive to want to do something with that and when the uh, the financial crash came about and I think it was 2008 you know I was one of the few people that wasn't made redundant but it just gave me I'd made enough money to roll the dice again and it gave me a great opportunity to actually leave the city and really followed my, at that point in time, my two main passions in life, which were food and drink, and also uh, the healing arts and science. And I kind of, in my own little way of finding my journey into those areas, I, I left the city and I decided, influenced by my sister, who'd opened up, up, up a tea business, but kind of centered around healing teas or, or kind of herbal wellness teas. But given her background as a homeopathic doctor, um, I kind of got influenced by that and joined her tea business and began blending incredible wellness, um, health-related teas in my garden studio. You know, having gone from being kind of a European head of you know, sort of capital markets to blending tea in my garden shed uh, was, you know, a bit of a departure, but it was just something that just sang to my soul and uh, I wanted to do it. And um so that kind of started my journey outside of banking. Yeah, you know, that was sort of 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And uh, yeah, just been building a really beautiful artisan, handmade 
tea business with sustainability, wellness, mindfulness, you know, a lot of those things that we all kind of embrace these days kind of running through through its DNA. Um, and we also supply teas, which is one of my passions. I, When I left the city, I um, re- retrained as a, as a tea sommelier and I became the UK's first master tea sommelier. Just, and I had to sort of travel around the world, you know, visiting tea plantations to get those kind of credentials. And so that kind of really set me up to, you know, beyond wellness teas, but actually begin selling into my other passion, which was food and drink environments. So we began selling our beautiful handmade bespoke teas into, you know, some of the best hotels in the world, like the Shangri-La Hotel, the Mandarin Oriental, etc. And that's become a really big part of the overall business. And we now have operations and sell tea into, I don't know, nine or 10 different countries, the Middle East, Japan, Asia, Vietnam, South Korea, Europe etc etc and we've also built you know tea houses as well so we have a couple of tea houses you know one in South Korea and one in London when I set up the tea business it was again it began as a mainstream entity but then very very quickly I began to work on a business plan that kind of really was around the edges of the mainstream of how tea you know businesses operated so introducing things like handmade teas you know teas designed by brand or um, designed specifically for a client, uh, bespoking innovation, uh, exclusivity, all of those sorts of words really underlying what we were creating and making. So even though tea is such a widely drunk beverage, you know, after water is the most you know widely drunk beverage in the world and everyone has a relationship with tea. Despite that, when I built the business and the business model, it was about you know taking that but actually creating something completely new around tea something that hotels and spas and beauty industry people have better experienced before and you know we were the first to do that pretty much you know 12 13 years ago i mean today wellness teas and herbal teas are the main growth area in the world of tea but back then it was um you know we were kind of at the outliers really in that area also been really interested in sports from those early days jeremy playing rugby with you at school you know i've kind of migrated and i sort of um, ended up becoming quite an accomplished tennis player somehow. And I kind of play, you know, competitively in the local leagues for my age group, you know, just really wanting to do more things, you know, bring that outlier approach, you know, do kind of novel and new things and kind of started developing this incredible, I think, this incredible app for the tennis industry, which is a completely different skill set. It's tech-based, it's apps, there's a whole world of knowledge and information and business plans all sits around the tech sector. And it's just been really really good fun trying to understand and navigate myself through that entire ecosystem of tech and apps and how to build businesses within that space um so yeah i've I've been busy i have a i have a wonderful family as well i should have said you know most importantly um you know 10 12 years ago i met a wonderful lady got married had kids um, and they're a big part of what fuels you know my energy in life it's funny, even though that we we have known each other since we were wearing shorts on the rugby field, and uh, I think I might have mentioned this to you. I'm, I kind of there's not many people I I've stayed in contact with because I left school quite abruptly. I'll leave it at that, and I didn't really ever go back. And so <laughs> I absolutely have sort of lived a very different life. But the two people that I stay in contact with is yourself. And well, when we were playing rugby, I played number eight and you played second row. And for those people that don't know rugby, the number eight 
is right at the back of the scrum. So when everyone goes down and sort of locks shoulders, there's a guy sits at the back and then there's two people in front of him called the second row. And for some reason, I have remained in contact <laughs> with both of you. And you're pretty much the only people uh, that I've stayed in contact with. It actually is amazing what all of that stuff um, teaches you early on. Because like you said, you know, when you first start out, that's what it feels a little bit like. You are holding on to something and you're wrestling with it. You're onto your possibly third career now with your tennis app. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The tea business is phenomenal, what you're doing. But it's taken us at Sense Worldwide about over 20 years now. You know, what we started doing was very intuitive, sort of working with very different people who you wouldn't normally expect to work with so people would think oh it's researching and no it's it's not really research if you're going to call it any type of research it's design research but even then and then some of it was being legitimized it was like lead user research but you know no one really understood the benefits of that and it's only just now that we are and over the last three years and our work with UCL their business analytics team having an in-house R&D team now working on this that we're actually we've actually been able to bring some science to what was intuition and and that has taken a very long time and it's only just now you say you, you're out there getting to know people I'm fortunate I have met some amazing people over those last 20 years and I'm pleased that most of us think very fondly of each other anyone that we've collaborated with has usually had a really great experience and and delivered really amazing breakthrough results off the back of working with the sense network but we can now see that yeah, in in our network, we often, as you've been talking about the outliers, we've just shared some research recently where we started to look at the profiles of people um, in the sense network. And as personality types go, they are more intuitive. We are the rarest personality types as well. So it's very low percentage. So we are out at the fringes and kind of the sense network has attracted people who are big picture thinkers who can see and think differently and can imagine new possibilities so it's probably not that peculiar that we've remained friends or have had similar sort of outlooks on on what it is that we're doing but it's taken a very long time to actually prove that and I've sort of stuck with it I have hung on to it despite times when you're thinking should I go and do something else when I and it, it, it's still intellectually and creatively really rewarding so you you keep going and you wonder where where might this take us I think that's what you just said I think is really what gives legs to any business um, um, that's going to be successful you know but I really resonate with what you said I think that you know intuition you know, I've been listening to, and again, this starts to begin to kind of go down to the spiritual route a little bit. So there's a guy that, I, that I've been listening to recently, actually, uh, just on Spotify, called Ranjan Chatterjee. Um, he's a doctor that has specialized recently in you know, well-being through mindfulness and intuition and meditation and, all, you know, just lots and lots of things. Uh, I've been meditating to kind of tap into my wells of intuition, but it's you know, intuition has come as a consequence of the meditation that I've been doing. And it's been it's it's been really, really quite amazing, actually, because it opens up areas of your brain which allow you to recognize intuition when you when you kind of experience it, because quite often prior to my meditation kind of routines and techniques, you know, you go through life and you have lucky coincidences where you have intuition around this business idea or that person, for, for example, but it's such a fleeting thought and often it's considered just a 
you know, like a little synapse blip in your brain and you had a little thought. But actually, if you go into your day and you're and you are feeling intuitive or um, you you tend to pick up on these thoughts and actually ponder them for more than just a millisecond. Actually, is there something, is this being driven by my intuition? And, you know, I've just been really relying on my gut instinct much more than I have in the past, rather than just using the grey matter here and years of experience and we've done this like this and we've done this and that, you know, gives you guaranteed success. Actually, you know, with the tennis app and when we set the business up, it wasn't that at all because it was all driven by intuition. And yeah, I really recommend you, you listen to his podcast. They're really, really quite fantastic. A quick break from this month's episode. If you're enjoying the conversation, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to dive into the back catalogue for more mind-expanding perspectives from the edges of culture. So what is the process of becoming a master tea sommelier? You mentioned you had to do a lot of travelling around and things like that, but can we dig into that? Because I'm completely fascinated by it. And actually, it's one of the main reasons. It's not just like oh, talking to an old friend on a podcast. The reason you've been invited is because, yeah, you are an outlier. You are the first uh, tea sommelier <laughs> In the UK, yeah, <laughs> and I think I mean, we have worked with water sommeliers before, but a tea really? sommelier. This is this is something different. And I've got you know, I'd love just kind of fill in some gaps here. Help you know, what's a one hundred and one on a, a tea sommelier? So really, you know, what is a sommelier? I guess someone who knows a lot about tea and is able to condense all of that information from all the different cultures around the world. So, for example. You know, China, the way it serves tea, the way it tastes tea is quite dissimilar to the way the Japanese would do it. You know, the Japanese are very known for having things such as matcha tea, you know, powdered green tea. And, you know, their their tea ceremony is actually enshrined in spirituality. Um, so, for example, you know, matcha tea was invented by the monks uh, because they they found that when you drank matcha tea, it would really help you to focus your mind when you were going into meditation and the monks in those days would meditate for hours on end and they needed something to sustain them and uh, during that process of, of, of kind of meditation so they invented matcha or they came across matcha and they created a whole ceremony around how to prepare matcha but not just you know boiling your kettle and popping it into a teacup it was all centered around preparing your mind to be ready for meditation so Every movement of your finger, every movement of your eyes or where your body moved to prepare the water to be heated by, you know, a fire in those days to all the way to drinking that tea. Everything was constructed with a view to deepening your your ability to concentrate so that when you'd come through the Japanese tea ceremony, you would be almost already in a meditative state and ready to meditate for, you know, hours on end. And in order for someone to become a Japanese tea master, someone who can perform the Japanese tea ceremony correctly takes around 25 to 30 years of training. I mean, it's just insane. And I think in my time, I've met maybe one or two non-Japanese people who've committed their, their lives to just learning this 30-minute tea ceremony, but takes 25 to 30 years to be able to perfect ability to um, to execute on that so you look at japan and there's a whole culture around drinking tea the vessels that you drink tea that comes from the history of how the monks used to use it for meditation but then when you contrast that to 
for example, how tea is drunk in China, you think that the two would be very similar, but in fact, they're very, very different. So in China, you know, tea is drunk in a very ceremonial way, but it's, it doesn't really have its roots in spirituality. It's, it's to do with occasion uh, or to celebrate something. Um, and it's all around the flavor profiles and the aroma. And you have these beautiful tea, you know, tea ceremonies, which are based around that. But then you go to India and they'll have a completely different culture around tea and how they perceive flavor profiles or how they perceive tea should be brewed. So when you're a tea sommelier, um, a bit like a wine sommelier, the idea is, is that you, know, you have experience and knowledge um, of the various different teas from around the world, but also the cultures within those different countries around the world. And when you're a tea sommelier and you're working in a hotel, for example, you know, we've trained, I don't know how many over the years, but probably 100 tea sommeliers uh, through our tea school. You know, their role really is, the, is to really bring that world, that richness of history and culture and flavor and aroma and sensory experiences to the table of a customer that's sitting in a hotel or a restaurant or in a tea shop and being able to convey and condense that information down and, you know, really spread the love around tea and just, you know, help people have the most incredible experience with tea, which, um, you know, relates to them because, you know, for example, uh, you know, one of the things that still resonates with me and excites me as a tea sommelier is that, you know, if you um, have a tea and you taste it, your perception of, of uh, that tea can be very, very, very different from the person who's sitting next to you drinking the same cup of tea. And it's not because necessarily because they have a different palate or they have a bad palate. It could just be their experiences in life have been different that, and that makes them judge things in a different way. So, for example, if you um, taste tea and for whatever reason, you can taste elements of spices in them. You know, I have a, I have a real experience with this. You know, I drank a tea and it reminded me of Moroccan spice markets. And I kind of explained that to someone I was having kind of tea with. And for them, it was something entirely different. It reminded them of, I believe, you know, being by the beach. You know, their sensory experience of drinking that tea was so different to mine. And, you know, that's the beauty of being a tea sommelier, to be able to understand those bridges and those gaps and to bring that beauty and convey that beauty of, you know, just how wonderful, not just from a, a taste and aroma and experience point of view, but, you know, how it can make you feel and how it can make you review your history and bring those memories and feelings back. You know, there's something just romantic and beautiful about tea that lends itself to that. I mean, there has been a bit of science around it as well and there is a certain compound within tea within the polyphenol chemical family uh, which can only be found in tea it's not in any other fruit or vegetable or food product in the world and it has been associated with feelings of zen if you like or feelings of contemplation and it's um so you know again a bit like your business they're, they're beginning to put science around people things that people have known for thousands of years uh if there's one thing that we're always striving to do with extreme perspectives is a little bit of mind expansion and i think you did that for me there you you were, you were taking me off and i was going yeah there's some connections here because as you talk about the ceremonies there's ritual making tea of course but with that ritual there's also things that are made with care or things that are made with love. And that actually enhances, I think, 
I mean, I've eaten food, you know, you can have processed food, which I don't care for at all and try to avoid it at nearly all costs. And then there is food that is lovingly made or even better if someone has grown the vegetables and prepared the vegetables and made the food and then making it for you. And, you know, it tastes better. And, you know, hugely subjective thing to say. And you're going to have someone go, no, that's absolute nonsense. But it's, it's, the, it's the point that you were making about how diff- there are different perceptions of that experience and you can be drinking from the same cup with a different person next to you and they will experience it completely differently. And I think that's a very wonderful thing. Now, I was going to ask, this might be a slightly ignorant question, but when it comes to what makes a great tea, is it that experience or do you judge it on flavor, taste, profile? I've got so many questions. Is it like a wine sommelier? Do you, you know, but it's hot, it's not cold. So, you know, how do you push it around your palate or around your mouth? You you know, are you nosing it? Are you, you know, and then what makes a great blend? How do you, how do you judge or score? I'd love you to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah, no, of course. It's um, it's a question I get asked a lot. You know, p- people are fascinated by it, and and again, I think it's because people have a personal. Everyone has a relationship with tea, and everyone wants to know more about it. And it's it's very similar to being, you know, the technology, um, the way of tasting, the grading, the growth of tea is all very very similar to wine. So we're finding over the last sort of five to ten years, lots of wine sommeliers are retraining or adding to their training by becoming tea sommeliers because the you know the whole life cycle or ecosystem of tea is just very similar to wine so you know grow tea you know again similar to wine there are certain terroirs which is a french word describing the environment so things such as you know temperatures soil conditions you know you know water drainage the level of sunlight the acidity or the alkalinity of the soil or you know um, the chemical composition the minerality of soil um, so there are certain you know using wine as an example because that's what people tend to know more about you know if you if you want to have a grand cru or a premier cru the highest quality wine from burgundy region in france you know typically people will buy a burgundy a Grand Cru from a particular terroir, which may be a little hill over the road, which is known for its incredible terroir for whatever reason. And the same thing is is, is with teas. So the best teas uh, come from the best terroirs. And if you're in the know, uh, if you're if you're a farmer or you're an exporter or whatever, you know wh- you know which tea is going to be fantastic because it's been grown in the right terroir. Obviously, you know um, prior to that, you know there's also the strain of tea that you're using again you know what is the genetic code um, like of the of the of, of the tea strain or the clonal as we call it in the world of tea that you're growing on that terroir you know that clonal or, or you know is the is the tea grown from a seed is it grown from a from a cutting is it a genetically modified hybrid of a t- of two different types of tea plants that you've planted in the ground you know there's a whole layer of farming technology and genetics which goes into developing you know tea plants uh, but you tend to find the highest quality teas uh, the ones that are revered the ones that the chinese will pay more for than they will pay for gold you know these high highly prized collectible items you know these are tea plants um, that haven't changed over thousands of years and they may be for example a handful of tea trees which these teas can be harvested from and they produce the most incredible flavor, you know, the teas that were drunk by the emperors thousands of years ago. And those teas still exist today. So, um, 
So that's an element of it. And then when you, uh, when I'm a, as a tea buyer, if I'm buying tea, I will go to either, you know, the joy of my industry and, and my profession is that if I want to buy beautiful, rare or premium teas, I would, uh, I would go direct to a plantation. So we, as a beautiful anecdote to that, we, um, we buy this, this tea from a really small plantation in China. It's called Yunnan Old Trees is the name of the tea. And it's the most incredible story. You know, it's a, it's a tiny plot of land and they have one tree, which is, you know, it was a tea bush, but they let it grow and it turned into a tree. So they harvest uh, the tea uh, from this tree and it's one tiny little family. Uh, and this guy produces the, you know, something like 60 kilograms of that tea a year. And his family survive on that paltry sale of that tea. And when I met this guy uh, in my travels in China and I tasted this incredible tea, which the secrets of how to make this tea, the oxidation process, which is basically how you make tea. So, when you, you know, to briefly explain that, if you bite an apple and you expose it to the air, it very quickly becomes brown. And that's called an oxidation process because it's exposed to oxygen. So they use that process in tea um, to create different flavor profiles. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's thousands of years of technology and experience which has been passed down from father to son to father to son. And, you know, I discovered one of these wonderful plantations. And, and again, it was literally the size of my living room, um, you know, with one tree making the most incredible tea you've ever tasted. So I made it my mission to buy all of their tea uh, and sell it. To, you know, even if I couldn't sell it, I just wanted to buy it. So you have moments where you have incredible experiences and you have very uh, soulful and, and human experiences with people, with very little people from a money point of view. Mm-hmm. This passion is tea. To all the way to going to, to tea kind of broker of firms where you go to Mumbai, you go to Ceylon or to Colombo and Sri Lanka and you buy in these big tea auctions where you may have seen pictures where you're tasting thousands of cups of tea to be able to get the right tea constituents which, make, which may make up your favorite cup of which could be English breakfast. So for example, to make our English breakfast, which is delicious, um, you need three or four different types of black tea. You need a tea from Darjeeling, you need a tea from Assam, uh, you need uh, a tea from Sri Lanka, like a Ceylon tea, and, and I added a touch of also Kenyan tea to that. And all of those flavors all have a different element. And when you drink English breakfast, um, you're, you have a certain taste that you're accustomed to and that you want to have to hit your, your, those zones in your brain that feel like you've kind of woken up in the morning. And, and to produce that flavor, it's consistently, it's very, very difficult because tea is a natural product. And depending on the weather, depending on the level of sunlight, you know, what's happened to your terroir that season, the teas that you typically buy from a plantation change their flavor profiles, uh, the quality changes. So when you're buying tea um, and you're blending tea, so as a master tea sommelier, when I'm creating teas, I will blend teas with the latest uh, teas we've been able to source from around the world. And there's a real process to get the, the constituents balanced so that when you, Jeremy, drink your English breakfast, it tastes exactly the same every single morning. So there's a lot of science, there's a lot of art uh, which goes into that uh, and intuition, to be honest. And one of the things that we do is our business, which we're very famous for, is, and, you know, one of our key USPs is that we create exclusive bespoke blends for all of our clients. So 
you know, when I set the business up, I didn't want, you know, most tea companies will sell the same standard tea bags to every single person who's willing to buy them. And you're like, right, there's your tea service and there's your tea products. But when we, when you work with us, it's utterly tailor-made. There is no such thing as a standard tea. It's bespoke, it's tailor-made based on their branding, based on their history. It could be anything, you know, based on colours they want to have in the tea. Um, you know, we made tea for the Burj Al Arab Hotel once in Dubai and because everything in, in Dubai is golden and the Burj, I don't know if you've been there, is just um, is a gold palace. So, so they just wanted to have gold in their tea. So we created a tea with 23 karat edible gold just because it was the Burj. Um, so when we design teas, um, I have so much fun. We've, we've been designing, I can't mention names, for some very, very famous, very cool hotel groups recent, very recently, as, uh, you know, this week, in fact. And, they, and the brief was, listen, guys, we've got a, um, we've got a candle uh, and it has a certain aroma. And we also have certain wallpaper. And we want, because we're going to do this big branding push, and we want you to design a tea that's an ode to the aroma of this candle and also an ode to the wallpaper that we're using in our hotels. And that's a freaking difficult brief, at least, you know, when you're making tea. Um, and so, you know, but we're really, really good at it. And, you know, we've actually created, believe it or not, we created a tea for that client. It's a hotel that you will know, well, it's a group of hotels you'll know very, very well. And the, um, the lady who owns it, or she's the interior designer for that business, tasted the tea. And it was one of the most beautiful, you know, beautiful moments. She called me up. She's very hard to get hold of. She's uncontactable because she sort of sits in the clouds. Um, and she called me. She said, gee, this is the best cup of tea I've ever had in my life. And it tastes like my candle and it looks like my wallpaper. I can't believe that you've done that. And uh, she was over the moon. So, you know, when you have moments like that, it's really, really quite cool. And uh, yeah, so that sort of gives you a sense of what I do kind of day to day. I'm sort of designing teas quite often um, and having just lots that of amazing. fun with it. Yeah, it's fun. We'll have to have a session one day. You should come to the office and we'll, we'll design some teas together. Maybe I should design one for the Sense Network. I think so. That would be amazing. Maybe we should include some members of the Sense Network in that too. I'm going to say thank you because you've shared so much. I've done very little talking. Um, I've done a lot of listening and I've learned a hell of a lot about tea or I feel like an introduction. And now I'm going to have to dig deeper because it was every, every time you were telling me something, I was asking another three questions. But that was amazing. Thank you for taking us on that little journey. It's been great. I mean, I have to say it's um, you're doing some incredible things, Jeremy, with your um, extreme perspectives and keep on the good fight on that journey. I, I think you're doing some really good things, seriously. And not just because I've known you since you were 13 or 12. You're very kind. <laughs> Aji, thank you so much for joining us. We will put all the links in the listening notes and I look forward to seeing you again and chatting some more soon. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You take care. Have a great day, guys. Thank you for listening to Extreme Perspectives brought to you by Sense Worldwide. We'd love you to join this conversation using the hashtag Extreme Perspectives. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. The Sense Network collaborates with many of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Join us at thesensenetwork.com or get in touch via email hello at senseworldwide.com.